All right, and welcome everyone. This is Dan Fagella here with Tech Emergence, where we interview investors, entrepreneurs, and researchers in the domain of emerging technology. And today, uh, in the interview that we're about to dive right into, I interview Dr. Patrick D. Hopkins, who's the chair and professor of philosophy at Millsaps College in Mississippi, an associated faculty member at the Center for Bioethics and Medical Humanities at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Uh, in this particular interview, we start to lean into some of the further ramifications of emerging technology on enhancing and changing human potential itself. Concepts that might verge on transhumanism or singularity-like concepts, if we're going to use uh, terms that are, that are thrown around on a regular basis. I certainly don't consider myself to be a transhumanist per se. I'm definitely no anti-transhumanist. But these are all topics and considerations that naturally sort of flow forth when we start to talk about the further reaches of genetic and cognitive enhancement. And these are conversations that we hold at a little bit of a philosophical level here with Patrick himself, who has a lot of experience there. So without further ado, we're going to let him take it away. All right. Awesome. Yeah. So I, I guess we'd, we'd start off first with just some of your thoughts on um, you know where gender and tech has taken us up until now and kind of where you see that trajectory going. I know you did a lot of work there, so I'll let you get right back into it. Well, I think that a, a lot of the stuff that's going on with gender and technology uh, continues to be about the relationship between um, how distinct the genders are or could be and what technology allows us to do. So sometimes it's more uh, in terms of, you know, function, like uh, does technology that we use, that you know, technology that's external to our bodies, does it minimize the difference between uh, the genders so that just socially, economically, in terms of careers and things like that, uh, gender differences become less and less significant. Sometimes they may become less significant because the type of work that's being done no longer draws on whatever sort of biological differences are present, you know, in the different sexes. And sometimes I think it becomes, uh, uh, the technology minimizes the, the differences of gender because there's, you know, somewhat less interaction with people hmm. that, that leads you to focus on what gender they might be and whatever sort of expectations that you have of that. So, for example, if a surgeon is doing robotic surgery, you, it may not matter, you know, even socially in terms of your own personal interaction, whether it's male or female or any of those kinds of uh, things. So I think there's a, there's a certain extent to which technology is simply uh, diminishing the extent to which we interact with people, you know, physically, directly. And regardless of what our beliefs, you know, most people will have certain sort of reactions to someone, uh, whether they're stereotypical reactions or not, based on their gender, and that just becomes less and less significant. You know, um, of course, there's always the the salacious stuff about you know what might happen in the future in terms of a body modification or in terms of um, virtual sex and, and those kinds of things. I don't think that all that much is is happening with that. Hmm. Um, I think in the, in the 90s when people were talking about, you know, the possibility that gender will allow us to, I mean, sorry, the technology will allow us to produce a post-gender world 
or something along those lines, that gender might become irrelevant in terms of you know actual um, morphology and those kinds of things. There, there does not seem to be much of a push for that among consumers. In fact, what the, of the limited kinds of technologies that we have right now, what we are seeing is uh, sort of more and more of a sort of a, a traditional interest in uh, gendered identity and using technology in ways that sort of match up with ideals of that. So for example, almost all the stuff that's going on in plastic surgery and even the new kinds of plastic surgery and that kind of stuff, you know, for the most part, women are getting plastic surgeries that magnify <laughs> the traditional feminine female aspects of the body. Men will get plastic surgery that magnifies the traditional masculine male parts of the body, that kind of stuff. And so again, these are still at a fairly low level. They simply are you know, altering some shapes of the body. That yeah. kind of but so what, what I suspect is, is going to happen for a while at least is that because human beings have the, the brains that we have inherited from our ancestral past, statistically, you know, we are interested in all the things that made sense in terms of sexual selection and natural selection in that ancestral past. So even though technology will allow us to do all kinds of things that would make radical changes to our bodies and radical changes to the concept and practices of gender that we have, for the most part, people really just aren't very interested in that. Now, academics tend to be interested in that because mm -hmm. academics are used to looking at new possibilities and wondering what could be made of those possibilities. But you know, that doesn't mean that most ordinary people are interested in that. You know, I recall when the internet first began to be used as a, a popular medium and there was the first uh, spam advertising that came out and people were horrified, they screamed and yelled because they had had this notion that the internet was uh, some sort of new, pure, democratic medium that would be untainted by commercialism and, and all that kind of stuff. But those were sort of early adopters that had, you know, scientific interest and specific kinds of sociological interest. When the internet actually became available to everyone, the only things that were initially profitable were things that had to do with money and sex. Well, that's because ordinary human brains started using the internet. So I think that um, although there are all kinds of potentials for technology to radically change culture, uh, for the most part, technology's use, particularly initially, is constrained by the inherited brains that we have, and people will seek out that kind of stuff. So I don't think that there's all that much going on right now in terms of uh, gender identity, gender politics, and that kind of stuff that's that radical in terms of technology when it comes to the very concept of hmm. gender, that kind of stuff. Now, in terms of other kinds of, of practical technology, uh, certainly technology is giving people the power to do things that they were not able to do before. 
So, for example, the recent New York uh, court ruling that Plan B, and over or some generic version of it, an over-the-counter contraceptive uh, should be available to anyone who wants to buy it. You know, those kinds of things, which was opposed by the FDA at first, and it's been fought by various kinds of organizations, um, anti-abortion organizations, uh, pharmacist rights organizations, that kind of stuff. There are always technologies like that that will allow people to do things that they have not been allowed to do before. But interestingly enough, something that is um, somewhat of a significant change in, you know, in terms of pharmaceutical policy and that kind of stuff is still related to the kinds of things that people of whatever gender they are have been interested in for thousands of years. Women have always been interested in, regardless of what they were allowed to do by society or not, they've always been interested in controlling whether or not they gave birth, whether or not they yeah. got pregnant. Understandably kind of so, yeah. Exactly. And so there's more opportunities for things like that, you know. Now, so one of the things that, that I was, so I was talking about earlier is our brains are still interested in the things that they have always been interested in. So technology may allow us to have some new possibility, but so what? If our brains don't care about it, we may never adopt it. Some things that are interesting, though, is that technology can allow us to do something new, which still taps into a very old interest. So, for example, even though we don't have a lot of uh, success so far, there is some success on developing artificial wombs. Now, it might be the case when artificial wombs are really financially and commercially available that women will, will choose to use them because they would like to have a child, but they would not necessarily like to have the unpleasant experience, to the extent some women find it unpleasant, of pregnancy and the dangers of giving birth. You know, But you see that kind of stuff fought out in culture all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, some women will, will promote the idea of natural childbirth, you know, not using pain medications. But for the most part, um, women have adopted pretty <laughs> eagerly pain medications mm -hmm. to help with childbirth. So there may be those, you know, kinds of things that will allow us to have more control over the traditional kind of gendered behaviors that we have already engaged in for a long time. And so ultimately I suspect that until maybe technolo te technology really changes culture, and I'm not sure exactly how that happens, I suspect the, uh, the gender dichotomies that we have uh, will continue to be one of the major filters for consumer technology and how we use it. Hmm. Yeah, because we still have the same brains. Now, um, same, same I, brains. Same brains. So, uh, wow, if we change our brains, we can change. Well, th there we go. So this is, this kind of leads us down a little bit of a different path. So, um, assuming that we're capable of now, we're we're talking about alterations, augmentations, uh, enhancements, uses, um, extensions, etc. With you know whether it be wombs or the choice not to be pregnant in the first place, um, I suppose the same kind of tinkering might uh, be desired to be done cognitively. So maybe that could be with our experiential day-to-day -day, um, you know affect. So maybe some people would choose like, man, you know what? I, I just rather never feel angry. I feel like it doesn't do the world any good. It doesn't do me any good. 
Um, I just rather nix that as an emotional experience in general and make myself and, and the rest of the world a little bit more pleasant and, and you know, be able to be a better person. Boom. Okay, so that's relatively simple stuff. Uh, maybe other people would say, you know what? I'd only like to operate. Right now my hedonic treadmill is like, you know, between, you know, being depressed or, you know, you know, really sad and, you know, being really happy sometimes. I'd like to only occupy the space of, you know, um, you know, nine and a half happiness and like 12 and a half happiness. And that'll be my range. So when I'm sad, I'll be like a nine and a half. And when I'm happy, I'll be like a 12 and a half. And I'd just rather have that. That also seems like a relatively logical extension, kind of builds off of what, I mean, what we want. We want to be pleased. We want happiness, right? And, Functionally and, hypomanic, but, you know, yeah, yeah. pathologically optimistic or depressed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, functionally hypomanic. That's good. That, that's cool. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote you on that one. But, uh, but yeah, so um, the, the, now that, that extends a little bit further where there's the potential of, okay, well, you know, what if I'd rather nix like this certain set of desires, maybe not even just an emotional experience, but this certain set of desires, this certain silly pre-programmed, you know, like ape stuff that I just don't care about, that I just want to like get out of my system and my character, and I'd rather, you know, orient myself towards this stuff and, and put a valuation on these other things, which I deem higher by my own ideals, etc. Um, now we're starting to get into an actual kind of tinkering with, with the brain itself and maybe kind of moving beyond that old brain that you've been referring to. Um, does that kind of factor into the future of how gender might play out um, in terms of just kind of general human enhancement side of things? Yeah, I, I think it certainly could. I mean, of course, it's, it's hard to know it is. how people might react to this kind of stuff until you get technologies that, you know, really seem to do the work. Yep. Um, so, for example, there's been, you know, a lot of recent publicity um, regarding... Um, oxytocin, you know, the the love chemical, you know, that kind of yeah. stuff. And so much that, you know, people are uh, thinking about, uh, you know, couples who have been together for a while, but the passion has faded. Uh, maybe they need to take oxytocin to sort of reignite that passion or uh, further cement the bonding and that kind of stuff. Well, so so people certainly might be interested in in that sort of thing. And it is also the case that, at least for some people um, who have pursued uh, chastity, celibacy, continence, those kinds of things over uh, the years, you know, they might be interested in a drug that might sort of eradicate sexual behavior, um, a sexual desire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you would think that, you know, this will just make life less cool. complicated. I can yeah. focus on my writing my books or whatever. Exactly. Whatever you know, else they want to focus on, yeah. But, you know... It, until those technologies are really available and someone can take them and experience them and be a spokesperson for them, yeah. that's hard to say. Yeah. Because, for example, the vast, vast, vast majority of human beings have never been interested in chastity and celibacy, right? But we have this tradition right. in, in human culture of those people who have pursued it, usually that were associated with some sort of uh, religious order or that kind yeah. of thing. But because those people tended to be historically the ones that were uh, more literate, we have them writing about such things. And we have specific sort of political and social reasons why they might pursue chastity or continence. And, and even in that case, most of them, certainly the people who talk about these kinds of uh, things even today, 
would say that it doesn't count as a moral virtue if you would take a drug to do it. Yep, you know, yep. It counts as a moral virtue if you somehow struggle with your internal uh, uh, issues and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it seems to be precisely the kind of people historically that have wanted, that have thought it would be useful to pursue chastity are the people who would think that, you know, taking a pharmacological agent would be the wrong way to do it. Now, it might be the case, however, that there are certain kinds of uh, desires or interests or just practical outcomes that we would really like but have never really been available before. So, for example, although this is somewhat of a silly example, Joan Rivers in, in her uh, uh, comedy act will often talk about how much she hates Viagra and all the things like that because she says that well, women used to you know, tell each other, thank God my husband has no more interest in sex. And when Viagra came around, it ruined their lives. They thought that it was essentially a kind of sexual retirement that they were able to get to. Now, of course, that's a comedy act, so we don't know how much that might reflect you know, actual interest. But perhaps it could be the case, you know, that someone at a particular stage of life or a particular type, type of uh, career really, really would like to take a drug that would eradicate sexual desire. Yeah. The or they might not want to be angry. They might not want to be, you know, all other kinds of things. Exactly. But until we have, you know, more studies on this and people who are actually, you know, using drugs that can be deep, we really won't know what that means. And we won't, not only will we not know what it means in terms of whether or not someone might like this, but neuroscience and psychology of emotions and moral psychology is still fairly new and one of the things that, that keeps coming up in this research is that there are multiple systems in our brains that are connected in ways that that become demonstrated when someone has a particular brain injury and some very bizarre behavior or desire set emerges that makes us realize, oh, there is two or more kinds of systems, whereas previously we might have thought there was only one kind of system. Yeah. So, for example, you you might think that um, that if you become afraid of something and you run away from it, that that whole fear response is is just sort of one system. But there are people, for example, who have had very precise kinds of damage to their amygdala and and it turns out that they will not be afraid of anything, okay? And yet, even in laboratory settings where you might give them a shock or something along those lines, they will anticipate that something unpleasant is about to happen. They will say they do not want that thing to happen, but then they will take no effort to stop it because it turns out that the fear emotion is somehow connected to these other systems of anticipation, knowledge, desire to avoid pain, all that kind of stuff, right? So it could be the case that if we had some sort of very specific pharmacological agent, which is pretty unlikely, pharmacologists will are always saying that these things are so interconnected, oh, yeah, it's, it's extremely yeah, unlikely that we'll have something that specific. But let's say that we did. It might be the case that someone could eradicate their anger, and yet they would end up being so socially bizarre yeah. for reasons that we really can't anticipate yeah. right now that they, they wouldn't be happy. 
it'd be a black because it's still a black box. I mean, we still don't know. Again, we're figuring out all the treatments are, you know, hey, crazy brain, look at all that nutty stuff in there. Let's let's whip these chemicals at it. Check it out, check it out, check it out. What happens? Oh, oh, that happened. Man, that's weird. I wonder why that is. You know what I mean? And then when it passes enough of those weird tests that it's like semi-functional, then we can start getting stuff through the system and people can start, you know, taking it and, and having effects. So I, I think that, yes, I think we would need to get um, beyond uh, the pharmacological kind of sketchiness of, right. you know, breaking other stuff on, on the way to, yeah. to getting there. And a lot of people think that, It'll be more kind of nanotech and brain-machine interface things that'll be that initial transition beyond the the the, um, the colloquial human potential and human experience. That'll be those other technologies, not chemicals you eat, but uh, more um, more involved kind of technological processes. Yeah. yeah, more mechanical kinds of things. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that happens though with the not only the production of technology but with the adoption of technology is that. What we anticipate and what we desire still does come out of the human brains that we have. One of the things that I've uh, remarked on several times is that transhumanism is not a transhumanist philosophy. No, transhumanism is a human philosophy. Very much. We yeah. don't know what genuine post-humans, transhumans, non-humans no really idea. want. Right? No idea. So when human beings come up with the idea of transhumanism, what they often are really thinking about is a kind of superhumanism. You know, I want to be super strong, super smart, live super long time, be super yeah. active, whatever, you know, those kinds yeah, of things. Yeah. And of course, we want, you know, to mitigate or eradicate some of our, our weaknesses and, and those kinds of things, which is totally understandable. But part of what that means is that for the development of some kind of technology and its adoption, uh, we may not have any interest in it because we can't imagine what it would be like to possess those new properties. And to some extent, if we can't imagine it, there's really no reason for us to want those new properties because we might have new properties that would be bizarre and make no sense to us now, but how do you distinguish those from the, the things that we think we might want? You yeah. know, so it, it's sort of like a future trace of humanism in the kinds of technologies that we might use to alter ourselves. Oh, yeah, totally. And, and I think that that's a huge, huge function factor. I think the notion that our ethics or any core semblance of values would remain the same, assuming we just blow beyond what human potential is, is in my opinion absurd. Um, it's, it's absurd and, and like borderline intellectually shameful to make that assumption. So um, I, I completely agree. I think that what most of us uh, are, most people would imagine in, in a transhuman possibilities are really what we desire intuitively is kind of what we desire from our own human ideals. And c conceptually, if we're able to really construct our, our brains and construct our experience the way we, uh, in ways that could alter things, and I think it'll be a slippery slope. I think if, if we can eliminate anger, 800 other doors will open up. And if we don't eliminate anger, you know, some other place that gets a technology will, and then 800 doors will open up over there. And I, I see that transition as a slippery slope, which could be potentially dangerous or, or a, a cool possibility. But, um, but I think that, yeah, as soon as the, those doors are opened, uh, you know, assuming we could, we could hypothetically value experience, sense, 
so many things beyond our current notions right. than imagining kind of like this, you know, Jetsons kind of future where it's like just a super cool whiz bang version of like the hairless ape stuff that we do right now is like uh, is a very silly. silly yeah, this song. actually goes back to the gender stuff because I mean, almost anyone who's seen the Jetsons or anything like this is is uh, already aware of this. But if you look back at the science fiction, particularly just the popular cartoony science fiction of the '40s and '50s and '60s. Um, even when you look at you know World's Fair um, uh, dioramas and presentations and things like that, it's amazing, at least from our perspective, how the people who created those artifacts seem to not be able to anticipate that changes in technology would have any change whatsoever in gender stereotypes and family shapes and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So yes, it's the Jetsons great. are in whatever year, and they're you know they have um, you know flying cars and all the kind of stuff. Yep, guys got a suitcase. Opens, the father pulls money out of his wallet to give to the wife so that she can go shopping and that yeah. kind of stuff. And they have a robot made. Hilarious. Uh, and, and these hysterical um, uh, ads and things from some of the old uh, World's Fairs and that kind of stuff that would show you what the house of the future will be like in 2000. One of my favorite is oh, a, a living room in which all of the furniture is covered in plastic. And what they do is they show a housewife who looks like Donna Reed. She's got the little little maids, you yep. know, whatever. And she's in the living room with a, a water hose. And, and she's just hosing down the entire room. And, and the whole point is that Housewives in the future will have a great time because they'll no longer have to vacuum and sweep. They can just hose down everything because everything will be made of plastic. Well, so, of course, the specific prediction that everything would be hosable plastic didn't come true. But the, the interesting thing was is that when that was made, anticipating you know, 60 years in the future, and this was a, a not just a cartoon, this was something that was supposed to be something of an economic commercial prediction, they didn't anticipate that women's roles would have changed one iota from just being at house, at home, cleaning the house, that kind of stuff. So, of course, you know, I always have to say, well, we don't know what might happen in the future. But given the, the immense rate of technological change and the social effects of that change, we should at least at this point be open to these two conflicting um, forces in human nature, which is, one... We are still keeping our social primate brains. And two, those social primate brains might react to new environments in ways that we really have a hard time predicting now because we just don't know what our desire set, what will be triggered by in that in that future. And, and on that note of, of uh, skepticism, because I know we're right about on time, I always ask this question. I'm curious from your perspective as well. Um, clearly, so much potential shifting and changing given the, the potentials of emerging technology, uh, um, kind of bioethical considerations, gender considerations, etc. Your work as an, as, as an intellectual, as a teacher, um, the work of scientists, the work of other people trying to share this kind of knowledge and proliferate this conversation, um, what do we all need to bear in mind as kind of intellectual contributors of one sort or another in order to kind of bring about the best future possible? I think you know, there's, it's impossible for any of us to know kind of the answer, but what can we do in our own work from your perspective to really kind of carry the future forward with everybody's expertise and, and perspective to something that will likely be aggregately best? What, what do you think is our best shot there? Well, that's certainly a big question. It is. What, what comes to mind is a, a, a two-pronged um, line of attack. 
One, you have the issue of what technologies, new technologies to push for. Two, you have the issue of how do we respond to the technologies that are currently arising, sometimes which have been deliberately made, sometimes which are sort of accidentally discovered. So in that first issue of what technologies should we push for, I think that being responsible about being able to articulate what is possible and what the benefit might be from those technologies is useful. Because there's a tendency for intellectuals who study technology because they're so fascinated by the newness of it, and probably most of them in one way or another are science fiction fans, to jump to the very speculative and to jump to the most speculative and to simply talk about the, the radicalness of change as opposed to what kinds of changes uh, we might actually want, that we might actually pursue, and that we might actually you know, resist. Um, so I think it's useful to think about not some sort of amorphous, radically different world in the future, but what kind of future 25, 50 years from now in which we will, people like us, or maybe us, will still be existing in that world. You know, we might live longer, be stronger, happier, healthier, whatever those kinds of things, but we're still going to be social primates. What kinds of experiences should we promote? What kinds of experiences should we make available? You know, that kind of stuff. So instead of just talking about the fascinating uh, possibilities of a very speculative future, um, you know, really put our efforts into, you know, what can make a difference that is good and foreseeable. But the, the second thing that I was going to talk about is the new technologies that are already here and the kinds of planning and reactions that, that we have to them. One of the things that's interesting in bioethics, for example, is that technology so often is outpacing the law. And so legislators and uh, judges will often have a really hard time dealing with new kinds of situations. And there is a certainly a, a tendency uh, in terms of for policymakers to want to avoid things until a new situation has arisen. And I think that there's a, a fear sometimes that if intellectuals who study technology engage in too much sort of uh, policy recommendations and those kinds of things, that they might be pushing for some restriction. But there's all kinds of things that we could be doing. And there's all kinds of conversations that we can have to think about the options. For example, there's um, uh, just read a story about how the uh, the UK has a commission that has been set up to try to deal with the potential legal issues of children who have three genetic parents. So one one possibility for uh, uh, reproductive technology, which is which is pretty easy, is in order to avoid certain mitochondrial diseases. You can get a donor egg, remove the nucleus, have the nucleus from um, a woman's egg put into that donor egg, then it can be inseminated. And so because mitochondria have their own DNA, the resulting child will have DNA contributions from three parents. 
Now, they're not evenly distributed, of course. Yep. But if you have laws, for example, that say, in the case of a parent's death, it should go to the other parent. Well, does the, the egg donor, who's only mitochondrially related <laughs> to the child, automatically become the, the person to whom the child goes? Anyway, so whatever that's, that's going to be, at least the UK set up a commission to try to figure that out before it happens. Because, you know, if you just wait for everything to go to the Supreme Court, typically something is not going to be decided until 10 years after, you know, the initial case caused the issues. So I think it's useful to think about those very practical policies that are not just on the horizon, but which are here or very, very near here. And uh, most bioethicists and most uh, hospital administrators um, have the issue a lot of having, you know, local judges, chancery judges and things like that just I'm not going to return your call because I don't want to make a ruling on this new weird thing. I, you know, uh, yeah. Kind of stuff. You know, so I suppose in some ways it's just uh, my, my overall recommendation is for, you know, people who are interested in technology and really thinking about it to, as much as you like the speculative stuff, and that can be totally fun, to really work with, you know, the nuts and bolts of what should be produced, what should not be produced, and how can we deal with what is already being produced? And, and I agree in many regards uh, with having a, a practical grasp of the present and the near future in terms of the transitions and technologies kind of moving forward. Um, obviously, those are all difficult conversations and difficult questions. The three-parent thing, the three-parent thing actually, on the whole, on the aggregate, in my opinion, being less complex than a, a good deal of other potential considerations. Yeah, but, it's not that shocking. But even, but even the three-parent thing, um, you know, even that is not, you know, it, there's no, there, you know, there's going to be no easy consensus on that thing. So um, given the fact that those are all really tough right and wrong kind of conversations, so much gray going on, so many uh, kind of unpredictable factors, do you think our best bet is just a, a multidisciplinary conversation that involves the expertise from the different worlds? Do you think, um, you know, the philosopher should go off and discern the ph the philosophic side and the other guy should figure out the other side and they should come together? I mean, how do we kind of, you know, thinking about those considerations, moving them forward, obviously very important. How do we do that practically in groups, individually, sharing this stuff? Um, what do you, what's your perspective there? Um, I think that it probably is best, practically speaking, to have sort of multidisciplinary groups working on these things. Now, sometimes people will put together multidisciplinary groups because they think it's some sort of, uh, you know, democratically appropriate, morally appropriate way to deal with things. And so it's more about everyone having their voice. Political here. correctness, yeah. Yeah, I'm not particularly worried about that so much as the, you know, the, the idea that a multidisciplinary group really can see things from different perspectives that all add up to one coherent approach. But, you know, part of the problem, and I don't think that there's any way to uh, easily to deal with this, is that when you start thinking about the so-called practical stuff, about policies, uh, about certain types of technologies to promote and that kind of stuff, that at the same time we're dealing with all of these technologies, we are also dealing with the, the psychological research that is coming into conflict 
with certain sort of political ideals and political traditions that have been very strongly influential. So, for example, a sort of uh, individualistic, liberal, libertarian tradition in which people are, you know, seen as certainly the best deciders of their own lives and the best uh, at judging their own lives. Well, that has a long tradition, and there's a there's a long tradition of of, of people always falling back on that. That ultimately, we always want to end up with a policy that gives the individual the, yep. the fastest choice. But it turns out that the psychological research is also showing that this sort of idealized, individualistic ideal of the mature human person that we get from the Enlightenment and other areas is really not right. Yeah. <laughs> human beings have pretty systematic ways in, we are, in which we are irrational. We have pretty systematic ways in which we make poor judgments about how to get what we actually want. We're pretty bad at figuring out how to make ourselves happy. We're pretty bad at figuring out how to stay in love, uh, you know, all those kinds of things. So it's, a, it's in addition to the technologies that are driven by the brains that we have and the beliefs that we already have, the science is showing us that our brains have evolved in many ways. It's just a, a irrational, jury-rigged pastiche of stuff that happened to work for a while, and our political ideologies um, you know, may not actually uh, be that productive. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff that's going on there. So if it turns out that, that one of the things that we want to do when we talk about the, the practicalities of policy recommendations for new technologies, we're also going to have to deal with the empirical research that is out there that is continuing to be done on what actually, objectively, helps make people happier, healthier, safer, stronger, yeah. you know, all those kinds of things. This is, this is one of the fascinating but frustrating things about human nature. You know, human nature has a complicated twist to it because on the one hand, we seem to be the only kind of organism that can imagine itself to be different than we already are. So we can imagine all of these amazing futures and, and that kind of stuff. But it's also the case that, as far as we know, we are the most conscious and self-conscious organism that we have any experience with. I think we often overestimate how conscious that we are and how self-conscious we are. There's a tremendous amount of our own individual natures which are hidden from us and which are driven by this evolutionary history so that we systematically pursue things that are actually not going to get us what we want, you know. So we're in this this pretty terrible, in some ways, existential, <laughs> bio-existential situation in which we have evolved to want certain things and we are smart enough to work toward them, but we're not smart enough to work toward them in a way that will actually get us what we want. It's just a whole bunch of stuff. Huh, know, so, there. so, yeah, moving also, in addition to what you mentioned before, towards a greater empirical understanding of fulfillment in our, in our own capacities to attain it 
as well. And I think that's apt. And I always look for at least one really pull-outable quote per interview. And you got me with irrational jury-rigged pastiche of stuff that worked for a little while. And on, on that note, Patrick, on that note, I will thank you very much for, uh, for the conversation today. As soon as well, I'm, I'm wrapped up, oh, very much. As soon as I'm wrapped up with the article, I'll send it over to you first so you can take a peek and let me know if there's any links or cool stuff I can put in there. And I'll definitely okay, look forward to talking, to talking to you soon, okay? Thanks very much. Cool, man. Yep. Good luck with your stuff. Cool. Bye-bye.